The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, as more than two million refugees leave war-torn Ukraine, what can the arts do? Plus, NFTs and other digital art in Dubai and Felix Gonzalez-Torres' Curtain of Golden Beads. As the humanitarian crisis following Russia's invasion of Ukraine deepens, I talked to Tom Green of Counterpoints Arts, a charity that supports and produces art by and about migrants and refugees. Amy Dawson is at the Art Dubai Fair and talks about its new digital section, focusing on NFTs, virtual reality and more, with the artist Gretchen Andrew and Anna Seaman, a curator at Morrow Collective, an NFT curatorial platform that's participating in the fair. And in this week's Work of the Week, As Summer, an exhibition dedicated to the work of the late Cuban-American artist Felix González-Torres, opens at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Toronto. Its curator, Rui Mateus Amaral, discusses Untitled Golden, a key work in the show, and one of the last pieces González-Torres created before his death in 1996. A reminder that to keep up with all the art newspaper's latest stories, you can download our app for iOS and Android, which you can find in the App Store or Google Play. And do subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and to our sister podcast, A Brush With, and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. Now, the UN's High Commissioner for Refugees warned this week that Russia's invasion of Ukraine had prompted the fastest-growing refugee crisis in Europe since the Second World War. More than two million people have already been displaced in Ukraine and have made their way west of their homeland, with 1.3 million people alone crossing into neighbouring Poland. In Britain, meanwhile, the figure has reached only 760, despite tens of thousands of applications. The UK government has faced increasing criticism about the bureaucratic delays facing Ukrainians with family ties to the UK. On Thursday, the Home Secretary Priti Patel was forced to announce changes to streamline its visa system. Counterpoints Arts is a charity that works with refugee artists and creates programmes in a range of art forms on the subject of migration and displacement in the UK and beyond. Their mission is underpinned by a belief that arts can inspire social change and enhance the inclusion and cultural integration of refugees and migrants. I spoke to Tom Green, a producer at Counterpoints Arts, about the situation now and in recent years and how the arts can help with this humanitarian emergency. Tom, as people see two million refugees leaving Ukraine, I think there will be a lot of helplessness among our listeners right now. Is there any advice you can give to people about how they can help? We have listeners in 100 different countries, so they're spread out across the world. But what can people do? Well, I think for many people, the most direct thing to be done is to donate money if you're able to. Each country will have its own setup for that. And it's easy to find out how to make a contribution. Obviously, in some countries, there is the ability to welcome refugees and get involved with that resettlement. But really, there's always expert advice from NGOs and authorities. And it's almost always best to follow what people need right now. Emergencies like this can be quite chaotic and confusing. So both local and national advice is always available. And there's always things people can do, small and large. 
Counterpoints is an arts organisation that deals with displaced people. How immediately do you get involved with those displaced people? So in other words, are you at this very moment right now in a network of communication with people from Ukraine? We're always in multiple networks of communications. And at the moment, that includes with organisations who are working with refugees from Ukraine. We're based in the UK, although we have international partnerships. Here in the UK, the number of refugees coming from Ukraine is currently very, very small. It's mostly people who already have family connections here. So there isn't quite that sense so far that we've seen of immediate need. Also, our focus is with artists. We're not an organisation that is dealing with people's immediate needs when seeking asylum or being displaced. But there are occasions when artists or people wanting to participate in the arts are in contact with us and organisations we work with quite soon after arrival. I think, again, it's hard to generalise because there are so many different situations and circumstances. And what we find is that organisations, certainly in the UK, and I'm sure this is true elsewhere, are actually very good at communicating with each other. So, for example, if there is an artist or someone interested in the arts seeking asylum, very often we'll have people contacting us from one of the frontline agencies saying, is there something we can do? And then we will be talking to the networks we know to try and find help and advice and maybe some routes people can pursue. Can you tell us about the sort of educational aspect of what you do? Because, of course, that must be a core element. Because on the one hand, yes, you're working with displaced people, displaced artists, but you're also engaged in communication and education about the very nature of refugees and displacement, right? That's right. So we're a charity and our mission is both to help artists, but also to influence the wider culture um, and discussion about displacement and migration. We do work with artists from refugee and migrant background. We also work with artists here at Counterpoints Arts who are not from those backgrounds who might have been born in the UK or born wherever. And our team is a mix of people from all those different backgrounds. So for us, it's about making connections, about sharing culture and communication through the arts and ultimately helping artists make the work they want to make And we believe that art in itself will lead to social change. The more art that's happening, the more people who are seeing and engaging with diverse kinds of art, including from displaced people, uh, the better for all of us, the better for the culture and the better for society as a whole. You mentioned earlier on that the UK response, because at the moment there are very few Ukrainian refugees in the UK, but that's within a wider context in the UK. I mean, I'm just going to quote back at you from a letter that lots of refugee agencies just sent to The Guardian, and I think it was published yesterday, in which they referred to the British response to the humanitarian crisis as chaotic, heartless and unkind. Is that your experience? Because it seems to be very common experience of the UK government's approach to displaced people's and and refugees? I think, Ben, what we've seen over a number of years is an attempt to minimise and reduce the potential of the asylum system on numerous fronts by the government. And we see it now where rather than offering sanctuary to people, it's a question of documentation, of complicated processes and visas, really with the intention of minimising the number of people who come. That's a long-standing policy from the government. 
But what's heartening is that the population seems to be having a different view. I think we've always seen it. There's always been, in spite of some of the rhetoric in the media over the years, the vast majority of the population recognises that people only leave their country when they're in dire straits and that there is a long-standing tradition and legal obligation to help people like that. And most people, whenever they see what's happening, as we see now in Ukraine, I think it was actually quite similar with recently with Afghanistan, when people could see what actually is involved when people having to leave their home, in these cases, in terms of conflict, people feel sympathy and want to know how to help. I think all the agencies involved see that, but the government needs to step up its action and actually make these processes work for people so that they can seek sanctuary when they need it. And does it hinder your work at all, that environment, in terms of what you can do, the kind of projects that you can engage in, the difficulty in communicating that idea about how welcome actually refugees and displaced people are? I think for us, where the problem comes sometimes is with public authorities who have felt this issue is something they're nervous about getting involved with. I think it was clear that especially around the Brexit debate, questions of migration became very difficult politically. It was more about authorities worried that they didn't want to get involved. Of course, there have been elements um, from the wider public of conflict around these issues. But generally, we find that across arts and culture and when you're reaching audiences, people are interested People want to connect with new, diverse and different kinds of art. The the real problem is with people trying to live their lives. So if you're an asylum seeker, if you're an artist coming here, it's so hard just to get on and just to live your life. There are so many barriers. It lasts such a long time, the process. So our focus is on helping people make the art they want to make. Unfortunately, they also have to deal with a huge number of very, very difficult things and traumatic things in trying to come to this country. And these processes could be made so much easier if people were given the right to work, if things didn't take years and years and years, if accommodation was clear, if legal advice was better, everyone knows really what needs to be done. And it's time that the government did it, really. Absolutely. Tell us about the kind of projects that you've worked on then, because this is a visual arts podcast, mm. but you're a, you're a multi-arts organisation, but there are really striking projects where you've involved multiple disciplines, all in, in particular in, in festivals and things like that, right? Yeah, so we work across a whole range of things in a whole range of art forms, as you say. Visual arts are very important to us. We work with lots of visual artists. I suppose our work is a combination of, let's say, the heart. We want to help artists. So anytime there's an artist, especially from a refugee migrant background, but actually any artist who who has questions, needs some advice, help, support, that can be a one-off call or it might develop into a long thing. We're always there to do that. We have networks. We're very interested in collaboration. Pretty much all our work is in collaboration around the country internationally. We also program ourselves. So the biggest time for that and the biggest network we manage is Refugee Week, which happens every June. What's great about Refugee Week, because it's this annual festival, 
is it's not reactive. So often with this kind of subject, it's always something's in the news, something bad's happening. Oh, tell us about that. And it's always in that context of the very real suffering. Refugee Week is a time when artists, organisations, everyone can set their own agenda separately, actually also about some of the positive things uh, that have happened, some of the positive things about people being able to claim asylum. We've also been working more internationally recently. We just completed a project in Athens with Victoria Square Project there with the artist Adrian Pachi. So we're finding there's more and more of this networking internationally because if ever an issue is an international issue, this is one. And it plays out differently in different countries, but there's many similarities. And I think what we find in common is that art has the power, both at that professional level, so we work with professional artists, but also at the participatory level, which is something we're also involved with. Lots of artists we work with, lots of organisations are engaging people from refugee backgrounds, but also just in the general population with art making of all kinds. And again, I think more widely, people are seeing the benefit of that for people themselves and also for wider society, in the, as I'm sure we all understand. Tell us more about the Adrian Pachi project, because it's, it's, it's a really intriguing one. It's a neon which said, we apologise for the discontent and stress that this may have caused you. And it seems to me that that conjures up all sorts of the issues that we've actually begun discussing in this conversation. Yeah, so this was a yes, commission with Victoria Square project in Athens. Adrian likes to operate in the space, in the kind of grey areas between subjects. And this was a kind of a provocation. It was a question of who's apologising, what are they apologising for? Victoria Square has been an area where many asylum seekers coming to Athens ended up. And their presence there was a challenge to people. What's your response going to be? There's also the question of people in Victoria Square, long-term residents, feeling of how have they been treated. So what we found was this artwork was a prompt to dialogue and the Victoria Square team had a team of mediators. So the neon sign in itself, something very striking, kind of exciting in a place where they don't normally have public art, was also a prompt to discussion and then was taken in lots of different directions with, with children, with local people. It's a very diverse area. And I think that's a lot of our work. It is about trying to open up, to extend and maybe sort of complicate discussions. There's a simple narrative, let's say, in Athens about asylum seekers just arriving. In fact, Athens is a site of migration forever. And if you can get people to think more broadly and deeply, it can actually help them to understand more about what's happening right now. The Ukrainian humanitarian crisis has obviously prompted a welcome focus on help for refugees, but it's also focused on a rather negative aspect, which has been this idea that we've seen it in in very mainstream media examples, people coming on and saying, oh, this is different because it's people in Europe as opposed to people coming from Afghanistan, say. Is, Is that something that you've encountered, a difference in the response here? And is it something that you can use this opportunity to educate people about the fact that we've actually been in a number of humanitarian crises for a very long time? I think it's clearly true that there has been racism. There's racism always is with us, unfortunately, in lots of ways. And there has been some essentially racist comments. And then there's been some sort of more subliminal, maybe... Dog whistle kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. and just in people's attitudes. 
But at the same time, I think the Afghanistan example was interesting because it was clear. The media presented something very easy to people to understand of people fleeing for their lives. And I think in some ways, Ukraine is similar. People fully understand how well have people explain what's happening in other countries around the world, in Eritrea, for example, or in Sudan. How much do people understand about that? And you hope that if people do come to understand, then they can see again, what these situations really are. And also, while there are those comments, I think again, most of the agencies we work with find that there's a huge amount of goodwill from the public. And in many ways, it's growing. I think this subject is getting better understood. It's moving beyond what the rhetoric that some politicians have been using into a level of greater understanding. And that's what all of us who work in this area want to see. It's about understanding, about connection, and about seeing what people can do to make a difference. And what's possible, which is so much more is possible than what's being done. You mentioned Refugee Week earlier on, and obviously this year, as you say, it's not reactive, but inevitably it will respond to events. Mm -hmm. Can you say something about what the kind of things that you might do during Refugee Week in terms of both your arts practice, but also just in terms of the messages that you might be getting out there this year? So Refugee Week is an open platform that anyone can join, and you can just check out the website and find out more details. We have a theme each year, and the theme we chose this year is Healing because we felt it's always relevant because we're dealing with a situation in terms of displacement that very often involves trauma, but also because we've all been through this COVID process. So healing will be very prevalent. Of course, there will be things responding directly to Ukraine. There already are. There are people doing appeals. I mentioned Victoria Square Project. They have a residency now. They've just launched an artist from Ukraine. I'm sure there'll be more of that. And I'm sure people will also be looking to make the connections between these different conflicts. There'll be exhibitions, there'll be events, there'll be performances. It is important for us that Refugee Week remains a positive time because in a way, the rest of the year, we're hearing a lot about the difficulties in terms of policy, in terms of experiences people have. And we feel that to have Refugee Week that one week in the year when we do focus on celebration, on coming together. It's a way of engaging the wider population to see that this is a subject that they can connect to. It's not something necessarily remote and distant. They're welcome in, and that way we feel longer term has a bigger impact. And we see Refugee Week growing every year, and it is growing internationally. There'll be a Refugee Week programme in Germany, in Greece, in Malta, uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan. So there's lots going on. Yeah, and if people want to know more or find out how they get involved, just so check out the website Refugee Week and get in touch with us here at CounterPoints. I'm aware that in the post-COVID period, we've talked a lot about arts organisations and funding. And I wonder if you might tell us, in terms of your funding, you're funded by the Arts Council, among other things, Paul Hamlin Foundation, which is a sort of private foundation but funds the arts. But with the growing acuteness of the refugee crisis, will you need more funding to, to fundamentally do more? Yeah, we definitely always need more funding to do more, for sure. We've been very generously supported by trusts and foundations who've really backed our work over the years. For us and other organisations, that is an ongoing challenge to get that funding and to secure that funding and do the work that we want to do. There's also private funding 
that we rely on and kind of earned income of various kinds. I think what will really make the difference for us and what really does make the difference when people see the kind of work that we do and understand it as something very positive, something that is contributing to the culture as a whole, because we're helping to bring in people who'd otherwise be excluded. So we see our work very much within the broader context of diversity and inclusion and participation. We have a particular focus. And of course, migration, refugees can often be the kind of the excluded from other things but we want everyone local councils arts organizations to see this work as part of this broader inclusion that makes our culture and life better for all of us that element of social change that you're talking about there does it happen in spite of government or can you lobby the government can this be a moment actually to ultimately change what has become the hostile environment in the uk i think there's some very heartening signs there's a coalition of organizations called together with refugees who are working very much on on the policy front and around there's a bill in the uk that is going through parliament that has some really really retrograde measures uh, towards immigration and asylum they're working together as a coalition with really clear messaging and they're definitely seeing that now there is a change of atmosphere. There is an opportunity. There are politicians on all sides who are saying, hang on a minute, this isn't right. We should be doing this differently. And if people want to know more about that together in the UK, together with refugees, is the coalition that has all that information around policy. At Counterpoint, it's not something we're directly involved with, but we're part of that movement that see that change can be made and change needs to be made. Tom, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. You can find out more about Counterpoints Arts at counterpointsarts.org.uk. And Tom mentioned Together With Refugees. Their website is togetherwithrefugees.org.uk. Coming up, we hear about NFTs and other digital art in Dubai and Felix Gonzalez Torres's Untitled Golden. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. In our coverage of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've reported that the Hermitage Foundation UK has followed the Hermitage Amsterdam in cutting ties with the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg and halted its efforts in building cultural bridges between the UK and Russia. The first ever solo exhibition in Russia of the late French artist Christian Boltansky has been indefinitely postponed. It was scheduled to open on the 14th of March at the Manege Central Exhibition Hall in St. Petersburg, but Boltansky's heirs have decided to pull the show and his works are being shipped back to France. The artist was descended from Jewish immigrants from Odessa, Ukraine's third largest city. And Pussy Riot member Rita Flores, who left Russia last year after multiple arrests, had the letter Z prefacing the phrase we will end this war sprayed on her Moscow apartment door on the 5th of March. The Z symbol first appeared on Russian tanks as they surrounded Ukraine and has become the graphic rallying point of the invasion. It's being widely compared with the Nazi swastika. 
In other news, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York is decessioning Pablo Picasso's first Cubist sculpture, Tête de Femme Fernande, and consigning it for auction at Christie's to shore up the museum's acquisition fund. As Daniel Cassidy reports, the work, which is expected to sell for around $30 million, will become one of the highlights of the auction house's marquee evening sale of 20th century art in New York this May. The bronze was cast from a model executed in clay in 1909 and represents a pivotal chapter in the development of Cubism, but it's being decessioned because the Met was recently given a second cast of the work. Meanwhile, bronzes from Benin in the Smithsonian Institution in Washington will be returned to Nigeria as part of a major restitution agreement, putting pressure on other museums worldwide to follow suit. As Gareth Harris reports, the Smithsonian will coordinate the return of the objects with Nigeria's National Commission for Museums and Monuments, with an agreement expected to be signed this spring. A spokesperson for the Smithsonian has said that the organisation is still working to determine the provenance of some of the 39 Benin objects in its collection. You can read all these stories and much more on the website or the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Asian Art Week returns to New York from the 15th to the 30th of March with a series of five live auctions and two online sales. Discover Japanese hanging scrolls, Indian court paintings and masterpieces by artists such as Bupen Kaka, Vasudio S. Gaitonde and Francis Newton Sousa. Highlights also include a Huang Huali recessed leg table, Buddhist paintings from the David and Nida Utterberg collection and Chinese snuff bottles from the Rochelle R. Holden collection. Find out more at christies.com slash asianartweek. Welcome back. Now, Art Dubai opens its 15th edition to the public today with more than 100 exhibitors from 44 countries. But all eyes are on its new digital section where, according to a statement, it will examine the context out of which NFTs, cryptocurrency, video art and virtual reality have grown since the rise of digital art in the 1980s. The special separate section for which the cryptocurrency trading platform Bybit is the lead partner includes 17 presentations from both traditional galleries and digitally native platforms. The Art newspaper's deputy digital editor Amy Dawson is at the fair and discussed the new section with the artist Gretchen Andrew who's also the curator of the art newspaper's XR panel and Anna Seaman a curator at Morrow Collective the NFT curatorial initiative which is taking part in the fair. So before we crack on with what we've seen and what we think we kind of need to talk about some of the terms that we'll be talking about because one of the things, and even Art Dubai acknowledged this, that's difficult about this digital art sphere now is that it's a whole bunch of terms and ideas that maybe are not so familiar to the traditional art market. And in fact, they have talks that are explaining all of these things to collectors and and visitors to the fair. So we're going to start by talking about some of them. Before we do that, do you want to introduce yourselves and Tell us a bit more about what you do, Anna. Sure. I'm the curator at Morrow Collective. Morrow Collective is an NFT curatorship. So we work as curators in the NFT space to bring artists, galleries, collectors and institutions into the space. So that relationship obviously looks different depending on who is on the other side of it. But ultimately, we we want to bridge the gap between the two worlds, traditional and digital or crypto world. So that's where the curating comes in. So we advise artists on what would work best. Obviously not all NFTs come from physical artworks. This is something that 
and we get asked a lot because we organize kind of hybrid exhibitions. We don't have a physical space in Dubai. We are based in Dubai, but we don't have a physical gallery. We do organize kind of hybrid exhibitions where we put physical artworks and NFT counterparts or digital artworks on screens. And a lot of people always ask us about this idea of physical and digital. I know we're going to talk about that later. Um, but what we do at Morrow is, is basically act as like advisors, consultants to bring all different sort of talents into the space. And then we curate shows in our Metaverse gallery as well. And Gretchen. Hi, I'm Gretchen Andrew, and I, in my practice, hack systems of power with art code and glitter, and I've just opened an exhibition in Dubai at City Walk at a new gallery called Galwar, called Growth Hacking, and in this exhibition, I'm showing both physical and digital work and addressing particularly the inequity with women only making up 2% of the contemporary art auction world, using my work to draw awareness to that, but then to also celebrate the efforts that are being made to change that at the same time. And we've already said a bunch of the words that we're going to explain. I personally find it still difficult to understand all of these new terms. So Anna, you're going to explain to us what an NFT is. <laughs> it's a question I get asked you know, all the time, as you mentioned, still people are learning quickly in this fast moving space. So NFT stands for non-fungible token, and it can be used to authenticate or tokenize a digital file. It doesn't have to be a piece of art. I know we're talking about art, but it can be any digital file I'm using blockchain technology to give it a code, a unique code, meaning that it cannot be copied. It cannot be, you know, stolen. It has its own identity using blockchain technology. Great. And Gretchen, you're going to explain to us what the blockchain is. <laughs> so at a very high level, the blockchain is a new form of database where information is stored in a decentralized way where everything that ever happens on it can always be looked up, can always be recorded, and will forever be visible to everybody in the entire world. It's a system of record that is run very differently, is more secure for certain reasons, and is the underlying technology of how NFTs and cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin operate. You guys are like making this so easy for me, like running one to another. Now Anna's going to explain to us what cryptocurrency is. Okay, so cryptocurrency, the most famous one is Bitcoin, as Gretchen's already mentioned Bitcoin. It is the oldest one. There are many different cryptocurrencies existing upon different blockchains. Ethereum is the second most popular after Bitcoin. We have Solana, Tezos. There are so many, I can't even think now off the top of my head. And Gretchen, one of the things that pops up is the metaverse. And uh, you curated for the XR panel a great piece talking about what the metaverse is. So if anyone wants to delve into this much deeper, then that's a great piece. But can you simply explain to us what the metaverse is? The greatest thing about the definition of the metaverse is it's not fully defined. It's being defined. Um, it's more of a promise or a marketing slogan right now than anything else. But it's being commonly used as a digital place where people experience, whether that's artwork or shoes or cars, it's a digitally native environment that has been constructed through CGI usually. And you can go and interact, but each one's different. And I'm very excited that each one should be different because it basically just means a virtual world that could be made or defined by anybody. Facebook owns one, CryptoVoxels owns one, but the article that me and my panel put together is much more in depth on this topic. 
It's great. And something that's coming up more and more with the war in Ukraine is this concept of DAOs, D-A-O. And there are some at the Art Dubai Fair. So could you explain to us what a DAO is, Gretchen? Yeah, sure. So a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. And it's similar to cryptocurrency, uses blockchain technology to distribute responsibilities and ownership structures in a way that the control is very decentralized. It's not a bank. It's not a government. Um, A lot of them operate like democracies or like shareholder meetings. And one of the most famous ones that I'm part of is Friends with Benefits, which is a DAO of creatives who both fund and support each other in this new structure. Um, And the last one we're going to do, which is something that keeps coming up in the fair, is a fun word, the fidgetal. Yeah, so the digital broadly is a term being used for um, people who don't draw a distinction between the digital and physical worlds. Um, Its roots are actually in something called digital monism, which is the belief that when we talk about virtual reality or extended reality, we're qualifying reality, and it's all just reality. It's all just art. And this is another topic we will get into as we talk about the distinction between the digital art Dubai and the main art Dubai. I like it as a term because it, it calls out that things are more blended and less binary than we tend to think of them in the art world. I think the fidgetal is a really fascinating new word in that it kind of demonstrates the lack of vocabulary that we have to explain what is currently happening. So things are happening at pace technologically and the art world is a part of that. And we don't have the words to encapsulate what we're experiencing and what we're living. So this fidgetal bringing together the physical and the digital is something that we're living, but something that we're struggling to talk about. And But Anna, you find the word a bit awkward. Mm. <laughs> I, I love the word. I did actually, um, initially when I first heard it without seeing it written down, I thought it was to do with the way that we sort of can't keep our, our concentration in the digital world, always fidgeting from one thing to the next, you know, because our, our attention is just so fractionalized across so many different platforms, devices. But I... It's growing on me. I think it's. I think you're right. It is a term that has grown from this maybe lack of another term to describe yeah. what's happening. So full disclosure, let's talk about what we've seen at Art Dubai. Full disclosure, I'm an NFT skeptic. <laughs> and I've been very open and honest talking to people in the section about that. And it's really fun because they, they really try and win you around. One of the things I think that's really fascinating about this kind of digital NFT field is that the people who are in it are super passionate about it. And it's really a community. Um, And that's, I think, a feeling that you really do get at the fair. So maybe you can start, Anna, by talking about what Moro are showing at the fair. So one of the reasons I love NFTs is because they come from this decentralization, which we've mentioned, but that also has an effect on the artists themselves. I think the art world is quite an elitist structure. It's quite difficult to get onto that ladder, to get gallery representation, to get exposure, to get anyone to kind of, you know, look at you as an artist. And in the NFT community, it's easier because people are united usually on social media or Clubhouse or Twitter or, you know, any of these platforms. So it's much easier to reach wider audiences, which is what attracted me first uh, to NFTs. Also, for artists coming from a physical background, uh, you know, traditional rather, painting or drawing or whatever, they found that if they move into digital, there's also new potential. Obviously, that the act of moving to digital has always been there. NFTs is a medium, not a new thing. But again, I really was passionate and am still passionate about this 
this sort of way that the community is lifting everybody up rather than kind of you know feeling like as an artist you, you're always reaching a closed door I think there's much more of an openness whether that stays or not as the space grows who knows so Morrow, I'll talk about a bit what we have at Morrow's stand. We actually have a lot of art. We have 36 artists on our booth. But I really do want to talk about some because we have established artists, physical artists that your readers will probably already know of coming into NFTs through a relationship that we have with the galleries. For example, Halima Karim, well-known Iraqi photographic artist. We have two of his NFTs on our stand. They are slightly animated, but they're so powerful on their own. Sarah Rahbar, also a really prominent Iranian artist. She's given us her first ever flag. I know she's quite well known for her flags. Her first ever flag actually doesn't exist as a physical piece because it existed and then she built upon it and built upon it and built upon it. So I'm quite proud of that one, to be honest. We also have works from artists who are very, very new to the whole scene. Aisha Juma is an interesting one. She's an Emirati artist. She's quite well established in the UAE. She's not massively well known, but she's been practicing for many years and she does these beautiful kind of meditative drawings in the physical world, pen drawings. And she's moved herself into digital drawings. They're really beautiful, almost surrealist portraits with lots of bright colors. And these are her first ever NFTs. She made them at the beginning of this month, two weeks ago. And we're excited to bring them. I think one of the things that's really interesting about your booth is that you're showing NFTs in loads of really different ways. So, for example, there's physical works on show that when you hover your phone in front of, you can see the moving NFT that it's backed by. We really wanted to bring all the elements of this brave new world that we're talking about to our booth. Augmented reality is what you're talking about. We do have two or three physical artworks on the wall which, which have NFT equivalents. And then we've married them by using an app called Artivive where you hover your phone, like you said, and they come to life in augmented reality. We have a physical sculpture which is actually derived from a Web3 coded language, actually. So we, it's called Meta Reversed because it's actually, it began life as, a, as an NFT and it's like kind of morphed into a physical sculpture. I want to describe kind of what this digital section at Art Dubai is like because it's very different from the rest of the fair. And we've not seen this yet, but when I spoke to the director, there's going to be a smoke machine so that when you descend the escalators, it's like you're entering another world. And it does feel a bit like that, like it's very dark in there, the, the gallery walls. It's not your white cube, it's a black cube. <laughs> it's black walls, it's green lighting. You know, it feels like very low ceilings. It does feel a bit like walking into some kind of like gaming space or something, you know, like it's obviously chosen a very strong aesthetic and you are overwhelmed by screens when you walk in there. But I guess that's to be expected. Again, going back to this digital word that we talked about and what we have done with our exhibitions, and also even with this presentation is to bring physical work in because I don't actually want people to feel like this world is completely separated from the, the other world. So it is, it's a brave new world. It's, it's, it's a, you know, we've talked about vocabulary. We've talked about, um, you know, the kind of hurdles. If you actually want to buy an NFT, you have to do certain things like buy cryptocurrency, open a wallet. It's different, but it is also something that I do think they belong side by side. 
I think they are stretching the possibilities of art. There's things down there, your VR experience and immersive experiences. But Gretchen, tell me what you saw in the section and what you liked. Yeah, I definitely think it was very interesting, um, as I think we were just starting to talk about, that there were two very different sections. In the opening I had last night called Growth Hacking, we did both. And I was actually, to be honest, quite surprised how successful I mean, the installation, but also we had buyers in the NFT space, we had buyers in the physical space. I also found it very interesting that the two art fairs are quite separate. Speaking about the digital sphere, the whole idea that anything separate could ever be seen as equal is is quite interesting, especially last night with the show that I opened called Growth Hacking. We had screens, we had NFTs, we had physical work, and both were selling, both were of interest. I get a lot of energy from the history of what is the NFT, what is the digital art, being connected back into more of the older and traditional arts, which really brings me to some of my favorite things that I saw at the Digital Art Fair here um, at Art Dubai. So gazelle.io had a beautiful booth with an artist called Mamadov, who is from Azerbaijan, um, out of the galleries Baku headquarters, because they have a London headquarters as well, but they have a gallery in Baku. And this work, while definitely NFT, while definitely digital, is really alluding to carpets and decorative arts and sewing and sewing patterns as these conveyors of information. And it really feels very grounded in a history, in a history that is much older than a lot of the NFTs that we see outside of the art world. I very much find that although I'm not personally a fan of how separate the digital art fair is, it's a very professional presentation. It's very well done. The quality of the work is very high. There's a great Don Diablo piece at Institute. The team from Snowcash is there. There's the DAOs setting up. And the work is generally is very good. Having gone through the blended experiences at Art Basel and at Freeze Los Angeles recently, I do think that the separateness is giving it um, here at Art Dubai, the opportunity to really grow and find its own voice and its own community. But I do hope for a more digital art fair of the future. <laughs> yeah, let's talk a bit about art fairs and the digital in general and where we see them going. Definitely some fairs have been more open to jumping on like NFTs. Art Basel definitely has picked this up. And some galleries as well, you know, mainstream galleries like Pace have been more nimble and able to create these new platforms or have capacity to, to cover this kind of art. Do we see this being a trend, something that continues? Do you think art fairs will, will get, whether they are separate sections or integrated sections, do you think that more NFT art, more digital arts going to be emerging henceforth in the arts Fair circuit. The reason that we're called Morrow Collective is because we truly believe this is the art of tomorrow. I agree totally with what Gretchen said. This idea of the separateness maybe needs to exist right now. Maybe it's important in a way so that this digital scene or sphere grows perhaps on its own. But I just don't think there will be so much separation. I think it's becoming mainstream. It's becoming lingua franca, as I said before. It's become. It will just be normal. And it will totally merge. And who knows, honestly, what the future brings for our kids. But I think the young generation growing up now, this is this is totally native, normal. They're used to spending money in the metaverse, things like Fortnite and Minecraft. They're used to buying outfits or swords or something 
basically they're used to buying digital assets. So when they become at a stage where they want to buy art, it will for sure be a digital and physical maybe. And I never say that one will replace the other. I'm very much a, a, you know, I'm a true art lover. I don't think you can ever recreate the experience of standing in front of, you know, a huge painting uh, or, or any kind of artwork that you can see the handiwork behind it and almost feel the energy of the artist in that work. That will never be replaced mm-hmm. by the digital world. But I do believe they can exist simultaneously in the same way, you know, ebooks never got rid of books. For me, I think it will live on if there's money in it. I do believe that. And so one of the things that will be interesting is how well will these things sell at Art Dubai? Although having spoken to a lot of the people who are presenting, the sales are not so much the forefront of what they're thinking about. Like certainly the DAOs are thinking more about getting more people into their community, getting more people normalized into this kind of technology. And also something that was fascinating when I was trying to talk to people about like, have you sold anything? Is how do you define that when the work that you're selling is actually listed on the blockchain, like anyone in the world can see it, bid on it, make an offer. You know, so how could you say that unless you physically held the hand of the person buying it and watched them like get their digital wallet out, it's hard to say whether they sold it at the fair or whether they sold it, you know, online or in the metaverse or whatever. I I was so surprised last night. One of the NFTs I sold last evening was from somebody who has been following it on the metaverse, following it on the platforms, but in a very sort of traditional way, came to the gallery to see the NFT and said, yep, that is the one I want. And I wondered, you know, the the context of all of these things, the future of the art fairs, these areas being separate right now. I think the, the good work is always strengthened by being in a history. And artwork is best served when it's presented not just amongst other artwork like it. And I think there is something about the question with a lot of NFT artists or artists making NFTs is, is there a practice? Is there an oeuvre? Is there a life's work here? And it's hard to really get that from a lot of the platforms and the curation in the NFT space is so important. The problem I find, and maybe this is why I'm skeptical, is because the amount of hype that has been about NFTs and how much money they cost and how much money you can make has meant that everyone thinks they can just make an NFT and make millions, which is not true. And so there's a lack of quality control or curation in the space. And I do think that will also level out. Like everything, now we seem to be in this rocket speed growth and everyone is trying to, you know, pile in and everyone's trying to understand it and everyone's trying to make money. But I do think that will all die down. And I actually think the space for fine artists who are working in NFTs will grow when, you know, when people stop wanting to make millions of collectibles or pixelated profile pictures you know it will be <laughs> yeah. I think it will I do I feel like it will regulate more I think one of the things that's interesting about Art Dubai doing this now is that as you say with curation and, and quality control it takes institutions and it takes art fairs to help organize that space because at the moment it's a little bit of a free-for-all it has been a bit of a free-for-all in the metaverse and with nfts and things and bringing it into an art world structure will kind of organize it and i think that 
setting, almost creating like an NFT art history, setting it in an art history and setting it around other galleries is an important part of the process of making it normalized and and part of the market and bringing those traditional collectors in confidently because there's a lack of confidence or not misunderstanding just kind of lack of knowledge or full understanding of what's going on so the traditional collectors are more hesitant and with things like institutions taking it on i think they they will adopt it Well, it'll be very interesting to see how it goes for the rest of the week with Art Dubai and good luck with sales. Thank you. Tomorrow. <laughs> and thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amy. Art Dubai continues until Sunday, the 13th of March. And finally, it's time for Work of the Week. That's the sound of Untitled Golden, one of the beaded curtains that the Cuban-American artist Felix González Torres made in the final years of his life before he died of an AIDS-related illness in 1996. It's one of a number of works by González Torres in Summer, an exhibition that opened this week at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Toronto in Canada. Rui Mateus Amaral is the curator of the exhibition and I spoke to him about González Torres's field of glistering beads. Rui, we're talking about Untitled Golden by Felix González Torres. Tell us about the work. So Untitled Golden is part of a body of work that Felix developed, and there are six different types of curtains. And the work is comprised of a set of beaded curtains that have to span across an area where people would naturally pass through in the museum. And Untitled Golden is uh, specified as golden beads. Uh, so what you do with the work is you receive kind of a set of loose instructions that tell you exactly what I just expressed in the sense that the only stipulation is really that it has to span that kind of space so that it becomes a kind of threshold or kind of membrane within the space. And then you locally source the golden beads and you install them yourself. And so the work is adaptable to any location. Wonderfully, in that very short description, so many of the complexities of this work begin to emerge, right? Absolutely. So let's talk first about the bodily aspect, because you use the term membrane there. And, and, and this body of work, these curtains, they all in various ways relate to the body, don't they? Tell us about that. Yeah, I actually didn't realise until installing this work how sensual the pieces, which is so contrary to kind of the moment we've been living through in the sense that also the golden curtain is this filter as well. It can also be a form of protection um, in the sense that it changes what is on either side of it, in the sense that it does create a kind of illusion potentially of a boundary, uh, which I think is really interesting about the work. It's interesting seeing that moment where someone is not sure if they can cross, but there's such a sensuality when you actually do cross because the weight of the beads almost creates a sensation of actually brushing up against another body, uh, which I had almost forgotten uh, because it's been so long since I actually crossed one of the curtains myself. So yeah, that's that's kind of my first thoughts about uh, its connection to the body for sure. And and of course, in others in the series, Untitled Blood, Untitled Chemo, these were directly related to the very visceral and tragic experience that Felix had of AIDS and his partner when he made this piece which was right at the end of his life his partner Ross Laycock had died of AIDS related illnesses and then he himself would go on to die of AIDS related illnesses and so the idea of bodily fluids are directly connected to this and then the experiences of the body at that time in a very politically charged moment right? 
for sure, it was a very politically charged moment. And, you know, Felix really straddled that line with his work of the kind of the critical and the celebratory, the public and the private, which this work also makes possible. And also the high culture and low culture, which is really interesting. What's, what I find so beautiful about the piece is that from afar, it feels like this monochromatic in the way that he described, you know, a spread of gold ones as this new horizon. Um, there's something shimmering, there's something kind of illusion-like about this piece. And then as you actually go up to it, you realize, you know, the beads are quite cheap. Just to kind of, you know, there's something, some of them are discolored. Um, in our case, in terms of the supply chain crisis, which is when we started to have to source the beads, the beads actually come from four different locations in the world and four different distributors, which also means that when you experience it, you start to see irregularities or moments of discrepancy between the kind of seriality of the beads, which also was kind of unexpected. And in that case, the idea of also kind of flaws of, of something that actually changes, that is influenced by the penetration of another body is very important in the work or really starts to come through in this exhibition, especially. There's also sort of that playfulness of of the sexuality of the work too right so there's this there's, there's this yeah. allusion to golden showers and so sure. and so obviously there's members of the public in the gallery experience and they walk through this curtain of gold yes and so there's something almost humorous about that experience as well right oh absolutely and also in the way that it might remind you of cheesy gay bars or or any bar in that respect there's something so celebratory about the work it's super transformative and also in this iteration there they actually cover the east-facing windows of the museum, so the light completely changes in the space. The work is kind of transforming before your eyes if you're there for any kind of uh, transition in light, which is really nice. And certainly the transition from one side to the other side. It's both narrow, but also still very spacious corridor. And so there's also a lot of the museum staff who've worked on the, the piece talk about it being such a private space as well. And then you also see the rest of the exhibition through that filter, which is really beautiful. So in, yeah, in addition to all of that, the idea of sexuality, of sensuality, um, of the body, of crossing a threshold, of brushing up against something or someone, it has all of these uh, implications, which one can only really experience when you are moving through it um, or observing it. And so uh, it's been beautiful to be reminded of that. At this moment, especially at this moment where Canada, which has gone through some of the strictest kind of lockdowns to kind of open up with the show that is called Summer, that is hopeful in, in, in its own expression. And then seeing this glow and warmth of gold, which is both a landscape, a body, residue to some degree. That's wonderful. And of course, one of the lovely connections that Felix established during his lifetime was with Ronnie Horn. Right. And he wrote incredibly beautifully about his experience about the gold field by Ronnie and about oh. this which is this very simple this mat of pure gold lying in the middle of an empty gallery mm. as he saw it and he was he had a kind of an epiphany in front of this work. And and, and this is a kind of response to Ronnie, right, as well. Yeah, the gold starts to become introduced or kind of picks up speed uh, in his work when he experiences this uh, with Ross in Los Angeles, that piece. And then him and Ronnie start to enter into an exchange about the idea uh, of gold, what gold makes possible. It's kind of illusions, but also it's fragility, right? The work is called not Untitled Gold, it's called Untitled Golden, which already implies this idea of something fleeting. It's a, it's a state, 
right? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, the celebratory aspect of it, as you say, is really crucial. But also there is that sort of real life aspect. You talked about this sort of humdrum material. He, he emphasized mm-hmm. that these, all the beaded pieces could be needed to be just humdrum beads that you could get from suppliers as you say but it's also about everyday life in other ways isn't it lots of people have talked about about the curtains relationship to the thresholds in latin american homes or or shops or whatever can you say something about that yeah absolutely this actually just happened before we had this conversation there was a number of people kind of moving through it moving materials from one end of the show to the other and only just hearing the sounds of the beads just reminded me of being in a bodega or being in a convenience store you know these spaces where this material is just, it's convenient, right? You conveniently just string it together and you can create this makeshift curtain membrane threshold, let's say, which you would use to kind of emphasize one thing or hide another, um, as an example. And so there is that, the sound of it brings in those moments of, of the everyday, but also of, you know, carnivals, of kind of mass celebrations, um, if we're going to, you know, think about Latin America. So I'm from the Azores uh, in Portugal, and many homes still have their laundry outside in these kind of tanks where you kind of wash the sheets, anything that's kind of like very mass. And many of the homes that I remember and still exist do have some form of like a beaded curtain as the threshold. And it just reminds me of all the kind of the women in my life whenever I would go back there in the summers who would just, you know, that sound was just, you know, someone's doing laundry or someone's uh, bringing the laundry back or the laundry is done. Those very kind of banal moments that all of a sudden take on this poetic power, uh, this sense of memory for people is, uh, it's, it's really strong in the work. That's really lovely. I, I wanted to ask about installing the work because one of the things that Felix said in an interview once was that the instructions are vague enough to allow an element of interpretation from curators and installers. And because of the kind of um, macho minimalist kind of precision that they'd been used to, lots of people couldn't get used to that. They, you know, that the idea that they were kind of almost collaborators in the work was somehow alien to them. Did you feel like that as a, a, a kind of you were helping to make the work to realise the work in that way that Felix sort of generously allows you to? Oh, absolutely. There's a gift to Felix's work, which is the the freedom to work within loose constraints, (laughs) to also bring in contradictions, which are so important to his work. There's so much agency, but that can also be a burden at the same time, right? In the sense of this idea of that's become important for me in realizing his work is the idea of inheritance, right? We're always passing down things and we're also taking on the responsibilities of things. And the question of what do you do with it, right? What do you shed? What do you take liberties with? How do you maybe transform something you've been given? And it's a, it's quite a, a big responsibility because at the end of that, someone else is interpreting it, right? You've made these choices, but these choices create new inflections and create new meaning. And at some point it's standing in those decisions and those choices, and then also giving them away to some degree and giving away that the power of the kind of meaning that those choices might produce in the world. And all of the myriad kind of interpretations that might come through, uh, through those decisions. So the weight of responsibility, I didn't quite imagine to be as strong as it was, but it's something that is definitely worth embracing. And it is beautiful to be part of the work and to have to be accountable for certain decisions. We talked about thresholds a lot in this conversation. And of course, this work was actually realized posthumously, right? He conceived of the work, but it was never shown in his lifetime, I believe. And he was very conscious that he was about to cross the ultimate threshold. He had a disease that he knew was fatal at that time. Absolutely. That's why I kind of punctuated in, in the writing is this idea of a new horizon, 
right? This idea that beginnings are also endings, even if they're sudden uh, or even if they're anticipated. And the life in his work is that there's always decisions that remain in his work that have to be made. And that the work, because he also removed his hand by embracing kind of commercial materials and industrial processes, let's say, it allowed the work to be able to be sustained by transformation and actually benefit from it. And so there is a kind of, I don't want to say acceptance of, of kind of what was potentially to come, but I think he was preparing. The work is so influential and it's almost a sense of preparation and, and generosity that he's kind of imparting at the end of his life. So it must feel extra special to finally be sharing. I couldn't believe this, but it's the first ever solo exhibition of Felix's work in Canada. It must be really special. Yes, it's really special. And Felix has a history here in Canada. So Ross was Canadian and he moved uh, partway through the relationship to Toronto to study biochemistry here at the University of Toronto. And so Felix would commute from New York or for wherever he was in the world back to Toronto to visit Ross. So, so it's very special in that regard because Felix does have a connection to Toronto that's both personal and in some cases, you know, there are, there are references to Canada in the work, some that are very direct, some that are kind of more subtle. Those do and don't come through in the exhibition. There's kind of a sense of abstraction and representation that, in respect to that connection that happens. So I feel very honored and, and humbled by being the caretaker and kind of the steward of his work on this occasion, for sure. Well, Rui, thank you very much for telling us about it today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Felix Gonzalez-Torres' summer is at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Toronto until the 31st of July. And you can hear Ronnie Horn discussing her relationship with Felix and her works Gold Field and Gold Mats Paired for Ross and Felix on an episode of our sister podcast, A Brush With. Download A Brush With Ronnie Horn wherever you're listening now. And that's all for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David's also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Tom, Amy, Gretchen and Anna and Rui. And thank you for joining us. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.